thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Rachel Rose, R&D supervisor at Industrial Light and Magic. Rachel has worked on some of the incredible projects at ILM, including the virtual cameras used on Rogue One, as well as Stagecraft and the volume. Rachel is such an inspiring and vital part of what we love about Star Wars and beyond, and it was such an honor to get to talk with her. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 143, Rachel Rose. What were the first inspirations you had growing up to even think about getting into this line of work? And was Star Wars ever part of that inspiration? Entertainment was always something that I was extraordinarily interested in as a kid. I mean, lots of kids are, but I was particularly interested in it. I would say that Star Wars was definitely a large part of that. I was born after the first movie, but before the other two in the original trilogy. I feel like Star Wars was always a part of our household. My my parents loved it. I had tons of Star Wars toys, plenty of things that maybe were being marketed to boys because I was I was a girl, but I was interested in it. I loved Star Wars. I thought it was such an inspiring story. Um, you know, this story of good and evil and, uh, the, you know, the hero winning out. <laughs> so yeah, Star Wars was something that was extraordinarily inspirational, but so was, you know, other shows that had especially a lot of visual effects. I remember being a kid and watching special effects features on the TV. In particular, one one always sticks in my mind that came from Terminator 2. Actually, just watching the final versions of all the stuff in, in Light and Magic, I was just surprised at the number of things they showed that I was like, man, that I that is almost an exact depiction of the thing I remember from a kid when I was watching these, you know, how do you do visual effects or how do you do special effects shows when I was a kid. So, you know, those were some of the things that I was really inspired by. You know, I loved movies. I loved TV. I loved video games. I loved pretty much anything that could be considered media books. <laughs> I would say from an early age, one of the first things I always thought was I want to work in the entertainment industry, whatever that actually ends up being. But exactly where that would end up um, was sort of still a question. <laughs> Let's track that journey a little bit then. Education and being a part of you know, learning those technical skills is obviously a huge component, especially with what you're doing now. How did that training, how did that education lead you down this path to really make something that you love into a career? In addition to the entertainment industry as a whole being something that I was interested in, I remember even maybe middle school age starting to become pretty fascinated with computers. We didn't have a computer at home until I was a junior in high school. We got a computer, but I'd been asking for one for, for years. Um, again, kind of just fascinated by the fact that you could do really exciting things with it. When I went to college, um, my original thinking was, well, you know, these computers, they seem really interesting. I think I'd love to learn more about them. So maybe I'll major in computer science, even though I didn't really know anything about it. And my thinking was I'd major in computer science, and then I would go off and go to law school and become an entertainment lawyer because um, that seemed to make sense to me with some of the things that I was interested in doing. When I started college at Grinnell College, it's a small liberal arts college in Iowa, started right in in computer science, I had never programmed before, you know, learned the whole trade. And by the time it was, I was ready to graduate, I realized that I really, really liked computers. And that was probably one of the first times in a long time that I thought that that meant I wasn't going to be doing something in the entertainment industry, I actually thought, okay, well, let's scratch that. Instead of being an entertainment lawyer, which was my way in, I'm instead going to go to graduate school and get a PhD um, in computer science and learn more about these crazy things that 
I can do so much with. So I went off to a graduate school, University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, with the intention of um, getting a PhD in computer science. And my very first semester, kind of on a whim, I decided to take a computer graphics class. And um, at the end of that class, my professor at the time, Michael Bleicher, asked me if I would be interested in doing research with him. And that kind of started my path down another road to getting into the entertainment industry, but doing the thing that I now realized was what I wanted to do with my life, which was computers and uh, computer science. I would love to dive into those projects and then even your early internships, right? Rockstar and Unreal. What were you learning when you were first now being able to enter into the workforce? When I was in graduate school, I did two internships at Rockstar Games. So a lot of my PhD work was specifically on human animation. So how do you generate human animation? How do you generate new human animations from example animations that look like they were created in the same way as those examples. They were automatically created inside a computer. And it's very applicable to video games. When I was doing my PhD, I started looking at different places that I might be able to do an internship and learn more about the trade. A lot of different video games companies came up, including Rockstar Games. And I started talking with them and I did two internships, one in Vienna, Austria, and my second one, San Diego. Each of those teams, I was working on kind of the, the same al- types of algorithms that I was doing in graduate school. So implementing things for their animation engines so that they could generate new human motions in their video games. It was really fascinating. It was really cool to be able to build real software in the computer that I knew was getting used to actually create games. I mean, after my very first internship, I was able to get a credit on Rockstar Games Presents Table Tennis because of some of the work that I was doing to to help generate parametric motions. And that was just such a a great experience to have in front of me. (laughs) How did you end up getting connected with ILM and with R&D and start to develop everything? Towards the end of my time in graduate school, I started thinking about what it was that I wanted to do afterwards. And it seemed pretty clear to me that there were really two pathways. I could go into academia itself and teach, which I was also very interested in, or I could go into industry. Um, And the industry one was the one that was really pulling me uh, more than anything else. Um, And of course, if you start looking into industry, you start looking at uh, different places that you might be able to go. Um, One could be film-based, and another could be video games. And as I've already mentioned, my my PhD was very applicable to video games. Uh, so I think that that would have been a natural progression. Um, I talked to a couple of different companies, but the one that really excited me the most was ILM. And I think part of that was going back to my childhood when I was, again, watching these special effects specials that were created by ILM, you know, uh, Terminator 2 and knowing Star Wars. And we were also a household that loved Indiana Jones. So it was kind of a natural feeling to to want to go to ILM uh, for those reasons. But another thing that really interested me was at the time that I joined the company, our R&D department, which is the department that I've been a part of for the 15 years that I've been at the company, was an R&D department for all of the things we did at Lucasfilm. So we worked on uh, film, we worked on TV shows at uh, at Lucasfilm Animation, and we also worked directly on games, including on the engine for LucasArts. So it was uh, really 
exciting to me. <laughs> the idea that I would be able to work at a company that works in all of this different type of entertainment media um, and be able to develop technology that could be used across them. Um, and I saw so much tie in between these different industries. I felt like there was a lot of tech that you could build that actually was useful for all of them. I believe you worked on The Force Unleashed 2 and like being able to kind of walk that line to then move into the actual movies and animation. I think Rango comes up pretty quickly after that. And that is such a benchmark in terms of ILM really going full-fledged and a fully animated movie. I'd be interested to delve into your career, especially early on as you start getting into the ILM workforce and mentality. What were you picking up? Are there any projects that really stick out to you from especially those early times? You kind of mentioned a few of the really big ones, but uh, you know, one of the very first projects I did when I joined the company um, was actually something for uh, originally for Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It was the, one of the films that we were working on when I first joined. And it doesn't sound super exciting, but it was to take data that was in one package and move that data to another package. But it was something that was very fundamental to the way the company works. That project in particular has a special place in my heart because it was one of the first things that I really saw the result of the work that I was doing because when we were done with that project, right, that was used on every single shot of that movie, anything that had anything digital in it, that, you know, the data had to be moved from this package to this other package. <laughs> and so that was really, um, really interesting. Beyond that, like, I think that the Force Unleashed 2 was a particularly interesting project because I was taking a lot of the stuff that I'd done as a PhD student in being able to generate these human emotions and manipulate human emotions and applying it directly to a Star Wars video game. So the hero is running around in the environment. You want things like his foot plants to land on the ground. So it looks like he's sticking to the ground. Um, and we had to come up with whole new ways of being able to like predict where his foot was going to be so that we could start correcting it before he got there, right? You need to start adjusting the motion so that it looks right before his foot lands. <laughs> uh, so you have to guess where his foot is going to be. That I think was very exciting uh, for sure. Definitely my favorite project when I first joined was Rango. I think one of the things that was so exciting about that project that Rango was the first full feature animation that we'd done at ILM. And we were in many ways in the early days of ILM, kind of redefining what it was that we'd be able to do with the pipeline that we had at the company. So obviously we'd had an established pipeline that worked for VFX, but now suddenly we were doing animated films. That's not an easy thing to do. So there were a lot of technical challenges and a lot of things that were being kind of passed into our research and development group to help solve. And it was done over a relatively long scale in comparison to what we normally do when we work on a, a visual effects picture because animated features last for so long. So there was a very long period of time that I was working on the show. Um, the One of the big pieces of technology that I worked on while we were doing that was something called Fez, which is a system for uh, doing facial animation. We had 120 plus characters on that show. Every one of them had to look completely different, but they all had faces and those faces needed to be expressive and they needed to move in very unique ways. That piece of tech allowed us to build these faces so that you could get variation, but also so that when an animator is sitting at their desk and animating those spaces, they have some idea about what it is they should be manipulating in order to get the performances they want. People don't talk about it enough. Just a fantastic movie. And the Crystal Skull conversation, much appreciated. I'm always down to hear more Crystal Skull. I just got a Crystal Skull replica, a big, full Crystal Skull. I have a few toys that I accumulated over the course of the working on that show that are some of my favorites, like things that are 
you know, little skeletons that you can see through that sit on thrones. It's great. <laughs> I'm the biggest apologist for that movie because I think it is so much fun and so great. I'd love to jump ahead in time just a little bit to especially Rogue One and the virtual camera system and working with Gareth and working with that whole team. I was actually able to see you talk at the Academy presentation a few years ago. You kind of went through the basics of that and it was just fascinating, obviously. I'd love to delve into that a little bit and that development and how that really impacted that project and, and projects since. Rogue One was a really fun project to work on. You know, um, Gareth Edwards is a really hands-on director. He's someone who likes to be able to, to help direct things in a way that really comes from his own hands and his own goals for what the what the work is going to look like. Um, so when we were working on Rogue One, one of the big challenges that really appeared was that we have these gigantic space battles at the end, right? Wonderful thing to have in a, a Star Wars movie. Um, <laughs> so I was already excited about this, sh uh, this show just because it was it felt Star Wars-y to me, right? We were going to be doing these giant face battles. But he wanted them to feel, again, almost as if they were shot handheld. Not only did we not have giant ships, but even if we did have giant ships, it would be extraordinarily difficult to shoot anything at that speed in certainly in space <laughs> that's handheld. So we were trying to find ways to give him a lightweight solution to a virtual camera setup, right? We didn't want to have to make it so that he would have to go to a big studio every time he wanted to show what kind of move he wanted in these space battles. But we also wanted it to be pretty high quality. For that show, what we ended up doing was we did a bit of kit bashing, right? Often, you know, we use the term kit bashing when we talk about how in Star Wars we can you know, in the olden days, take literal kits that you were sold in stores and put together models from the bits and pieces in the kits. And then later we continue to do that in the digital world when we build set pieces. But we did the same type of kit bashing in order to build our technology in this case. We knew that we wanted something that we would be able to track in like an office-like environment <laughs> that would be able to display images on the screen of the space battle. We took an iPad and attached a game vice system to the side, which is a system that'll attach to it that has little controls so you can play video games. And then we basically took a, a Vive controller and we shoved it in the back on the plastic part of the back of the, the system and used a Vive VR tracking system to decide where the camera where the camera was, the, the iPad was at any time, any one time. And then we streamed images from the computer once it knew where the camera was based on this Vive tracking system onto the iPad. So what we ended up with in the end was that Gareth had this setup inside of an office for him to use at any time. And he could go in and pick up this device, uh, again, very lightweight, and start shooting the space battle. So, you know, we had the space battle already all laid out and he would just play it. And sometimes he would just play it over and over and over and over and over again and, you know, shoot like 60 different camera angles following different ships. And it was a really successful way <laughs> to get that kind of handheld feeling for Rogue One. We also found it very useful for a number of other places. For instance, um, you know, the first time he was able to use the virtual camera system was right before the very first teaser trailer was supposed to come out. And we wanted this magnificent reveal of the Death Star to happen. And he wasn't sure exactly how that was going to happen. And what he ended up finding, again, through experimentation with the virtual camera, was that there was this wonderful way of like, showing the Death Star appear through shadow and light. And he only found that by playing with what it looked like inside the scene as he moved the camera around and the lights around live. It was a wonderful example of how 
that style of virtual production with a virtual camera can really provide a lot of interesting finds in film. <laughs> that kind of leads me into the, the ultimate R&D project, at least for the past couple of years, Stagecraft, and working on that and bringing that to Mando, especially in, in that evolution. I would love to start kind of at the beginning and, and the first thoughts of why Stagecraft for Mando, how you were brought in, what that process was like, and then as, especially season one went on, maybe tweaks that were made or things as you learned and, and as the environment grew and then brought that into season two and, and Book of Boba Fett. The Mandalorian it has been a really interesting journey for me and kind of the development of stagecraft and the volume and all of that over time. You know, I was brought in in 2017, I guess it was, Richard Bluff, visual effects supervisor. He had reached out um, to myself and a couple other people within our R&D group to say, hey, we've got this interesting project and uh, we want to start talking to you about it. You know, it's a live action show, but it has a lot of digital components. We really want to be able to shoot this. And John Favreau really has a vision for shooting this in a way that relies much more heavily on virtual production and allows us to get away from you do regular production and then you do the visual effects production afterwards and you put the two together. How do we get closer to doing these things together? In some of the very earliest conversations, the idea of final pixels started coming up. So is it possible to start capturing final pixels in camera? Is it possible to get real lighting from a real, a, a virtual environment in a very dynamic way as, you know, the, the actors are moving around in a space? It was a, a really great time to start thinking about that because I think, you know, real-time technology had come a long way. And if you looked at some of the advancements that were happening, particularly in the in the gaming industry with real-time renders and the renderer that Epic had and in Unreal, um, it was extraordinarily powerful. We started discussing like, is it possible to render images uh, at a fast enough pace at the quality we need in order to have them on a wall and captured by a camera in real time in order to produce final pixels. I will admit in those early days, I, I was 100% gung-ho about trying all of this and experimenting with it, but I wasn't really convinced that it was going to work. <laughs> um, I think it was uh, the summer of 2018, I was responsible for putting together our first big test. We built a small, very first volume built of LED walls and very small in comparison to the, the volumes we now build today. Uh, but it was quite large for anything that I'd seen up until that point in terms of LEDs, uh, LED systems like this. It, we called it the June test. We put up this wall with a ceiling and the whole idea there was it was going to be two weeks. The first week was some technical tests. And then the second week was shooting tests. You know, John Favreau came in and Richard Bluff came in and we shot all of these really interesting things. And I was pretty blown away myself, again, having been responsible for having to make sure that all this worked together. I was pretty impressed myself that it worked at all. And yet at the same time, like I was looking at the images and thinking, it doesn't just work like it really works, especially when you start doing things like blending with the background and real real objects, or as soon as you put something in the foreground, it looks right. We did a test that was of an environment that one of our amazing artists at ILM had been working on that was like photogrammetry of a building on, I believe it was Angel Island in, in San Francisco. And we kind of on a whim, I believe it was Richard Bluff who reached out to him and said, hey, why don't we pull in this shot? I want to see it in this test that we're doing. So we pulled in that shot and put it up on the wall. And that to me was like 
I'd already been 100% convinced that this was working way better than I ever expected. And suddenly that thing went on the wall and it was it was real images, right? It was real images, real photogrammetry and of an interior environment. And as soon as you looked at it through the camera, it all looked real. <laughs> it was it was as if Mando was actually standing because we had a stand in for Mando. Mando was actually standing in that environment. And at that moment, I knew we had something special and it was going to work. And it was just a matter of now taking this little prototype that we'd built, building a completely new system <laughs> that would actually work for a full production and doing it all in like three months. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I feel like that was a pretty amazing moment. <laughs> and so then, of course, filming begins and you're able to use it in real time. You're able to use it for an actual show and then for a second show. And, then, and now it's really gone globally. What is the future of the volume? And what maybe during these times have you kind of seen and how it's evolved and how different filmmakers have been able to use it, right? You've had so many different directors come in for Mando or for, you know, a Marvel movie, whatever it might be. How have they adapted to it? And what have you kind of seen as the technology evolves even more? I think a lot of the interesting things that have come up one one there is just the scale right you mentioned that we have all these volumes now i mean we have five permanent volumes at ilm now and on top of that we also do bespoke volumes and uh where we'll build something out specifically for a specific need there's a scale problem <laughs> how do we get to the point where we run all of those with people all over the world who maybe you know when we started it was like small group of people who we could get in the room with and like chat with and every day about how oh, well don't touch that button because you press that button this thing might happen right but we wanted to be able to make this something that we could use at a large scale and so there's that and then on top of that, we also have you know, the needs of production. And I think every production brings, just like with Gareth Edwards and Rogue One, every production and every different filmmaker brings a completely new set of things that they're wanting to do. And sometimes that is just a variety of content in different environments that maybe we've never seen. Maybe it's a different look. Sometimes people want to be able to move cameras faster. And what we really tried to do with kind of the development of the full uh, stagecraft tool set since then is to be able to hit all of these different variations. So some of that is filmmakers want to be able to move anything at any time. Um, so we uh, have worked hard to establish the, the core of our stagecraft system as something that can, anything can be modified at any time and we can swap in assets. We can even model assets live on the screen. It's a very interesting thing to do. It doesn't happen too often, but it's possible. <laughs> we can make it so that every tree in a forest is independent and we can still draw it in real time in our proprietary rendering engine called Helios. Operators are able to move each individual tree into a new location. And so that gives a lot more power to the filmmakers. The other sorts of things that end up coming up a lot like first time when we started getting into Boba Fett we needed much more I guess is the maybe the wrong word but eerie foggy environments and so we started working with more algorithms and techniques for doing participating media in in the environment and then a huge win for us has been our workflow. So there's kind of two different places where people in the volume can be working and make modifications to what's on the screen. One is they can be sitting at what we call the brain bar, which is a row of desks outside of the volume, but still on the stage where a bunch of amazing artists are sitting there doing, doing work to make everything look great. And the second is amazing artists standing in the volume that have an iPad 
that or other sorts of devices, and they want to manipulate the data on the wall. That has been one of the areas that we've done a ton of development to try to bring as much of the stuff that was happening at the brain bar into the volume where it makes sense. Because you want someone to be standing with the DP or the director, have a request, and make those changes immediately right there without having to call back. And it's also a lot easier if an artist can see the wall to make these sorts of changes than when they're sitting back at a desk with a monitor. <laughs> what have you seen develop over your 15 years at ILM? And then what do you see in the next 15 years, next 20 years, really kind of growing from this? And what are you kind of excited to start experimenting with in the future? I think that the the Mando experience so far and the Stagecraft experience so far, we, we're doing so much with it. But I think that virtual production is still in its infancy. I think that we have way more that we can be doing. And I think part of that is that the, the hardware is improving. So there are aspects of the hardware setup that will allow us to do better things. But I also think that we are constantly trying to figure out how to remove that veil that seems to sit between the real and the digital and make it all feel the same. That is still going to be a huge level of development. And I think that that level of development will continue. The other two areas that I'll mention that I've kind of uh, seen coming up through ILM, I've already seen it changing, but then I, I see it being more of a thing, you know, bringing those sorts of real real-time technologies to the desk we still do a lot of post VFX, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. But, you know, traditionally, a lot of those those visual effects techniques are a s slow process, right? There's a lot of, you know, you spend a lot of time with artistry, and then there's something you have to wait on. And then you spend a lot of time with artistry, and there's something you have to wait on, often render. And ideally, you know, real-time technologies become more and more an as part of every piece of our visual effects pipeline in order to, to really bring down that that iteration time. The other thing that I've noticed a lot of change in is um, the AI ML space. AI ML technology is an, an, an interesting new tool that we have in our toolbox. It's not a solution to all problems, but it is an interesting tool in our toolbox. And we've already seen things like denoising being something that is possible with AI ML technology that really significantly cuts down uh, or imp improves the efficiency of what we're able to do in our rendering pipelines. And I think that we are experimenting in so many different ways with the ways, you know, ML AI technology can affect other aspects of the pipeline. And I think that's going to be something that's going to change the way we work. <laughs> I cannot wait, obviously, to see what you and, and the rest of the team cook up. And Rachel, thank you for, for saying all this and coming on. And it really means the world because y'all are just crushing it out there so thank you so much brandon Thank you so much again to Rachel for coming on the show and being such an incredible inspiration and resource. Thank you as well to Ian at ILM for helping coordinate this interview. And of course, if for some reason you are listening to this show and have not yet watched Light and Magic on Disney+, Plus, it comes with my absolute highest recommendation. It's just astounding. If you're enjoying this show, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really means the world. That's all for now, but until next episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.